Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Tom, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Josh, how you doing, my friend? What an honor it is to be back on the show. So thanks for having me back. We have so much to talk about and catch up on. You wrote a book right after you were on the last time, and it's been on my list of things to do is to bring you back on to talk about this amazing book, which is so relevant for the time that we're in, and we're going to get a chance to talk about that, which is Personal and Authentic is the title of the book. But not only that, you're working with Future Ready Schools and doing phenomenal things all over the world, and I really want to dive into that. But before we even discuss that and important topic i'd love for the listeners to kind of get a glimpse of who you are if they haven't had a chance to listen to the prior episode what is the journey of tom murray great well thanks for having me back i guess i didn't screw up the first episode too badly is i guess probably what you're thinking there (laughs) well my friends it's an it's just an honor to connect with you and josh thanks for your time as well if you're listening to this i'm tom murray my day job is just that i'm the director of innovation for future ready schools Many of you might think like, well, what's that? What does that even do? So Future Ready is a bipartisan nonprofit out of Washington, D.C. We raise money to be able to do what we do for school districts across the country, school and district leaders, really for free. So there's no sales pitch. And people always ask, what's the catch? That sounds too good to be true. We are there to truly break down barriers, silos. We're an equity-focused organization. So prior to all that, I worked for school districts in Pennsylvania. I was an elementary teacher when I first started. I was a secondary teacher. I was a secondary principal. Then I was an elementary principal. Then I went to district office. Like I obviously couldn't keep a job. So I got recruited to go to DC, (laughs) like totally makes sense. Right. So now I work out of Washington, DC. I work remotely quite often. Sometimes I'm down there, not, not during COVID there as well, but regardless of where I go, I get to work with amazing educators like you, like your colleagues. And that's what really inspires me. I love what I do. And future ready is kind of that full-time job for me, but they give me a lot of flexibility and freedom. And that's where I get to speak and author and connect with district leaders across the country as well. And so no matter where I go, there's great people working hard for kids. Yeah, I love it. And I love the work that you're doing. And it's like I said before, it's so relevant to where we are in education right now. Obviously, you know, everybody knows the educational landscape has morphed and changed, not planned by any means, but probably needed. And I really want to dive into the what you guys do with Future Ready Schools and kind of give everybody leaders and our listeners an opportunity to kind of learn more So what is a future ready leader? Yeah, well, first of all, I will say that before just anytime I get to connect with educators, whether it's a podcast, a webinar in person, I first just want to say thank you for the work that you do each and every day, recognizing the trials, the overcoming fear, anxiety, the, uh, the adversity that you faced on a daily basis over the past you know, year plus, and just recognizing and truly standing awe in awe of the work that you do and that you lead. So at Future Ready, I encourage folks to check out futureready.org. Again, we're, there's nothing for sale. There's no for $20 a month, you can be future ready too. Like this is not how this operates. Future ready is really grounded in an incredible practices. What I mean from that from the get-go is, you know, having gone from the district level to Washington, D.C., I've been adamant since the get-go. We are not going to be this 50,000-foot view that's never been there, never done it, going to tell places what to do and then fly back out. That's just not our mantra. So we're really also a collaborative of about 80 advisors. So we have a number of strands um, from district leaders to principals to technology leaders to instructional leaders, instructional coaches, to librarians, to school boards that all represent. We understand there's other groups 
and stuff that we'd love to get funding for to support, but really all working together to support a vision of transformation, a vision of change, but really a vision that's kid-centered, that's equity-focused. And so when you ask what a future-ready leader looks like, to me, it, this is not about having some checklist of, you know, I, I did these 12 things, I passed this little test, so I got the t-shirt. That's not what we're about. We're not about this gotcha mentality or you're missing number seven on the rubric. We're very much about mindset and practice and policies that represent all students. And so future-ready leaders are equity-focused. They recognize that all truly means all. All When we look at what's called the future-ready framework, we also ground our beliefs and practices. And so to answer the question around future-ready leaders, we'd want to look at the backbone of the future-ready framework, which is very evidence and research-based. The framework on the outside is really around collaborative leadership. It's the leadership and the culture. So to answer your question on future-ready leadership, what that really does, they create cultures of innovation where people want to be. Like, let's face it, if our people don't want to be there, why the heck are we doing what we're doing? Like if our students, if one thing we have going for us in education is the law requires them to show up. If it didn't, would they still come? Mm -hmm. And here's what I know in amazing classrooms and amazing schools, the answer is absolutely because we provide pillars of support. We provide incredible opportunities and experiences that kids run to on a daily basis. But how do we also make sure that that's the norm and not kind of the one-off there, right? So future-ready leadership creates cultures of innovation where teachers can take risks. They model, they recognize that they also need to be vulnerable at times to be just real. It's not just stand in front and deliver. It's how do I model the expectations for my teachers in classrooms? How do I run faculty meetings, in-service days? If I'm going to ask my teachers to be visible, how do I make sure I'm visible? You know, in modeling those types of practices, future-ready leaders create environments where people want to be that's really built on trust, right? When we look at the other parts of the framework, it goes from curriculum instruction and assessment to personalized professional learning, budget and resources, community partnerships, data and privacy, robust infrastructure, um, use of space and time. But at the middle of it is the kid. It's not as the us as the adults. It's real easy in education to be like, well, what does this mean for me? And, and as humans, we naturally do that. Like, what does this mean for me? How does that affect me? How does this contract affect me? At the end of the day, as lovingly as I can, like, it's not about you, right? People sometimes misinterpret that when I say that. I, I don't mean that in any sort of demeaning or derogatory way, but like, why are we really here for what we do? Like, what's our real purpose in this work, right? And having asked thousands of educators that questions and listened to response after response, it's the commonalities around like changing the lives of kids, influencing the lives of others, making differences in communities for long periods of time. So when I go back to future ready leadership, it's also about vision. You know, one of the key areas of schools that we would deem kind of future ready in that regard, they have a vision of what they're trying to navigate to, but also have the flexibility to recognize things are going to happen. Like, I don't know, a global pandemic that we're going to have to navigate around. Right. And so future ready leaders are agile. They recognize there's not just one buy it program and heck, not just one buy it book that's going to solve everything. And I say that as an author. And so they have the agility to be flexible because that we work with people and things change over time. And so those, those pieces are just some of the core tenets around that, around vision, around culture, around equity, around keeping kids first. You can check out the different frameworks at futureready.org slash framework. We have a framework for each of the different strands that I mentioned earlier, right. but right. so much to this work is really about mindset. And I love that piece with the framework that you've got. Obviously the model of leadership has changed over the years and I think it's going in the right direction. I love what is on that website. So if anyone's interested, make sure that you click Click on that. That'll be in the show notes for you as a listener. But definitely check out the website because there's a ton of resources and content for future ready leaders. 
you brought it up, Tom, which is the student. It's all about the student, about the learner, and I think there's been a huge shift in a good way as far as what is happening in the classroom. So what does that look like for a future-ready learner? It's interesting when you reference the future-ready learner because sometimes people have said, and we've, we get the, you get the occasional pushback, and you know it, like, future-ready, they need to be future now, like, it needs right. to be now. And I'm like, I get it. And But when we talk about we're not talking about us. We're talking about like the learners and kind of their needs and how do we best prepare them for their future. So when we think about future ready learners, we can go down to the basics of like, what are the skills that we want kids to really, really have? Mm -hmm. It's not just to take tests. It's not just to regurgitate information, right? It really goes in line with what the best teachers have always done. They create these authentic experiences for kids to give them some of these real world skills. And let's face it, Real world skills, when we look at it, are far more than reading, writing, and math. And of course, those things are vital and we need to do it. Some of the best future ready schools that I see out there in terms of preparing their learners are partnering with businesses, partnering with organizations to give kids these. And by the way, I, I even hate the phrase real world experiences. And I was about to do it because like <laughs> our kids are living in the real world. Like yes. tell our kids when they show up at school, by the way, you're about to exit the real world. Like it doesn't make sense in their world because that's what they're living every day. Right. Mm -hmm. But when I see these incredible schools working to give students incredible skills for when they leave, whether that's skills for the workforce. One of the things that's really interesting, I think under No Child Left Behind, by default, we put kids in these four-year college boxes. And what a mistake that is. Because let's face it, like you ever pay a plumber on a Saturday overtime, like they're doing okay. Like yeah. you ever need to hire an electrician because they're doing all right, right? And if that's what kids want to do, let's glorify that. I saw something amazing uh, in the news recently. You know, quite often we glorify signings. I played, I played sports in college. We had a signing. I got to sign. I got the hat. They took the picture, right? Did all that. But at the end of the day, so what? What about the kid that's signing to go be that electrician because they've gotten all these skills at high school through some apprentice type programs, internships. In California, there's this whole linked learning movement where kids are getting all these certifications and stuff prior to leaving high school. Yeah. And so when we look at it, it starts with the experience as well of what can we really provide? You know, if we're still forcing kids as seniors to sit in a study hall, like, is that really the best that we can do in 2021? Like, just process that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, no disrespect, but honestly, like, waste of time. Right. Total waste of time. So when we take a look at the future ready learner, how do we prepare them for a world that constantly is changing? How do we provide them? And I don't want to be like cliche about it, but let's face it, like the jobs that are evolving for them, we need to prepare them to be able to evolve, to be able to adapt. We've all needed these skills over the past 13, 14, 15 months, right? Just throughout the pandemic. And so when we take a look, like I go back to, you know, how did my high school prepare me? And I will tell you, I had a great high school experience. I was really pushed, but there was no smart technology. There was no app design. There was no, but that world has evolved really, really quickly. So how do we make sure kids can do far more than regurgitate those? That gets to deeper learning practices. It also means sometimes we really should evaluate like why we do what we do in terms of teaching. Quite often we do that mile wide and kind of inch deep, right? Yeah. And sometimes we need to really, really evaluate and that pair some of that back. It's that old adage kids ask all the time, like, why are we learning this? Why are we learning this? And to me, that's a really good question that pinpoints one of two things. Number one, maybe it's a good question. Maybe we should reevaluate some of the things that we do in school for quote unquote learning. But number two, it's also really looking at the kids don't understand the relevance between what they're investing their time in and their everyday life or why they would ever need it. And if we know, like, if they're missing that connection to the why, learning's easily stifled, right? And so when we go back to that future-ready learner, it's giving them the skills 
to be able to do what they want to do, be able to, no matter where they are, no matter what their zip code is, have the opportunity to explore those kinds of things moving forward. Because let's face it, they come to us in kindergarten from very inequitable backgrounds. Some come with plenty, some come not knowing their alphabet, not being able to write. They don't start on a level playing field. So our job is to give them as many of those skills as possible, but also to empower them to really follow their passions, follow their interests, follow their strengths and celebrate those things and not put them in the one box to say, you must fit in this box post-graduation. Help them find their passions, help them find their interests. You know, if we sometimes, I believe, school the love of learning right out of a kid by the time they graduate, and I think giving them those skills, recognizing their interests, passions, strengths, their beautiful uniqueness Mm -hmm. is really something that we can do. And from a future ready end, those authentic experiences are vital. We fully get, there's some real basics to reading, to writing, to math. You know, if you had a kid from five year old to 18 year old, like, I don't want math, so I'm not going to learn math and never did anything. Well, yeah, that's obviously not an ideal scenario. And you have to really hit, why is that the case? What's that looking at? but giving students the opportunity to explore the kinds of things that they want to do. We only get a set number of days from K to 12, but we have the opportunity because so many schools are doing it really well. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. What you talked about with the evolving and adapting is where we are right now. I mean, we all as educators, as learners, as families have all had to adapt to the situation. And that really does lead me to the question of right now during the pandemic, everyone keeps talking about when can we go back to normal? When can we do what we used to do? And for me, I feel like we had an opportunity to make some really needed changes through the pandemic. And I have this fear that we're going to go back to the status quo and the traditions that we had in education. You know, when I look at the future ready leader and the future ready learner, that drastically is different than the traditional model. So my question to you is, where do we go to an education from here? First of all, so let's dissect the question. And it's a question that I see almost every day in some fashion. Maybe it's a family member's Facebook post. Maybe it's, you know, just something on social media, this whole idea of back to normal. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to hit on the head when we take a look at that. And I think it's a natural question to ask, but I think it's important to dissect the frame of reference that people are saying from that. Let's face it, pre-pandemic, our country in many ways operated really well for some people, Yep, not for all people. And so when we take a look, when we talk about going back to normal, if I'm one that craves everything perfectly back to the way it was, it really shows the lens in which I operate that I was in a system or a structure that worked really well for me. Mm -hmm. But we've got to dissect the fact that, especially for our black and brown kids, our systems and structures holistically across the board have not worked really, really well. And I don't say that any, any sort of disrespect. I say that that's a reality. And over the past year in the pandemic, we also have not just had Corona. We've had a whole lot of social justice type issues and movements and those kinds of things from Black Lives Matter to George Floyd and to those kinds of things as well that have brought this front and center. I say all of that as a white male that grew up in a two-parent home in suburban New York, right? I didn't grow up in poverty. I recognize that the majority of our students coming to school 
have a different lens and a different experience than Tom Murray ever did. It's why as a leader, it's why as somebody that works on equity nationally, I have to step back and recognize my frame of reference, my understanding is going to be different. And I will never truly understand the experience of those that experience things like racism and those kinds of things as well. So we talk about going back to normal. Number one, I think we've got to be really careful in what we're talking about. I think most people, when they're saying it in the conversations that I've seen, they're talking about going to church on Sunday and not worrying about having to wear masks, or they're talking about, you know, being side by side with friends, having a drink and with friends, uh, you know, at a local restaurant and not that type of stuff totally makes sense. But from an organizational structure and uh, an educational structure, I think we've got to be careful with that term itself because it can really point out either privilege or privileges or, or uh, inequities in that regard. So, and, and moving forward, I think, you know, being that we do so much equity work, one of the things that's really, really interesting is like, if we go back to that kind of March 13th date, everybody talks about that Friday, I was standing with a district and I was in Wyoming. Remember the, the, the principal came over and was like, Tom, like, this was the first, like, we got to ask you to wrap up early. And I'm like, man, I've never, that's not a good comment. Like I, I've never got that one before, but I knew like I was talking with them at lunch, like I knew something was coming. I knew it was coming then. And they, that's when they had to shut things down. And the reason I share that is if, if you're listening to the podcast, bring yourself back to those moments, the fear, the unknown, the anxiety, the political things that were happening on the news, all those pieces, you know, that following week when schools all across, not just the country, but the world were either shutting down or had shut down. Like, what were your priorities at that moment? It wasn't like, oh, the benchmark math assessment next Wednesday and the spelling test next Friday. What, like, people didn't care about that. Mm-hmm. It was like, who's got the food to eat? Who's going to be safe? Who do we need to check in with? Because we're worried if we're not going to have a couple of days with them. We instantly reprioritize so much stuff. So when we think about that, going back to normal, it also showed us there's a lot of things that maybe we got away from yep. a lot of things that like, again, going back to that, no child left behind when, when kids are walking through our hallways, it almost trained us to look at them as like data points and test scores. And man, things are going to be taken away if a kid doesn't do what we need to do. Right. And that's kind of the way that federal law was written at that point. But taking a look at all those things, it helped us reprioritize a couple of things that I'll say the, the best educators have always kept as priorities. It's why. SEL is front and center on, I can't tell you the amount of districts that I'm working with, speaking with that are come talk to us about SEL, talk to us about the story stuff that you do, talk to us about, and and it's doing all those pieces, but listen, like that's not a new concept, right? It's not a new concept at all. In some places they've, they've always really valued that the equity side, which I keep bringing up, like that let's, let's face it on, on that next week, districts started to say like, Oh shoot, like, what do we do for all of those kids that don't have connectivity at home? We released the first ever study through future ready schools on a state by state breakdown, which showed it was about 16.9 million kids disproportionately. It was our black and Latinx families disproportionately was them didn't have connectivity kind of at the start of that pandemic. And I share all of that because that became like this front button issue. If we can't connect with them, they can't learn. It became this opportunity gap. Right? Mm -hmm. So here's my question. How much did you care about that on March 12th, March 11th? Because it was still an issue. Yep. We've at Future Ready, we've been talking about that for six years in terms of the digital equity side of things and recognizing those pieces. Some districts, they had been all over it prior to, and they were working on this multi-pronged approach with businesses and with hotspots and working in all those different areas. Others were kind of like, oh, guess we got to do something about it now. And I say that as respectfully as I can, but when we talk about moving forward, here's my question for school and district leaders that are listening. You've invested a lot of money in devices, in hotspots. Every district that I know has poured lots of money in those areas. 
when things get back to being in person, maybe you're there already and you're coming from Texas. Many of them are there full time already. Yep. We're going to pull those hotspots back. We're going to pull those devices back. Be like, I recognize you have the need, but we need them back now because that will really be the gut check on the equity side. And I know some are about, well, how we pay for in this. And yeah, there's a lot of inequities and we're working on a lot of that federally there as well. We worked on the last bailout package. There's billions of dollars to support schools. This large influx the first time. Now it's only one-time funding, but it's gonna be a very large funding structure coming through, especially for higher need schools in that area. So when we look at all those pieces, I know there's so many facets to this. How do we focus on as we continue to move forward? Equities and non-negotiable. And I want to be really clear, like COVID didn't create equity issues. It highlighted and amplified equity issues that have already existed. And so moving forward, this isn't something that now just goes on the back burner again. It's got to be front and center. As we get this one-time funding from the American Rescue Package coming up and as districts start to get that, how do we make sure that those dollars are used and all really does mean all, and we're not just making sure that they're an a traditional structure that often supports the same types of students. Like we got to break those down and now's the time to do it. So as we move forward, equity becomes front and center related to that. And by the way, we know that that's far more than devices and access. Mm -hmm. There's so many things around hiring practices, so many things around curriculum and taking a deep look at curriculum. You know, do we see the mirrors as students? Do we see the doors, the windows, like that analogy related to curriculum? Can kids see themselves in it? There's so many facets, discipline rates and practices that we could really dive into in that. So moving forward, I will also say with all of those things, I'm so proud to see the work that districts are doing as they continue to prioritize this stuff moving forward, as they've continued to bring back the whole child approach, recognize the beautiful uniqueness inside each child, but also really recognize the trauma and everything that's happened with the fear and anxiety on the inside of our walls and the outside of our walls over the past number of months. And so those districts that continue to move forward in that regard, continue to support that whole child type mindset, that SEL side of things, um, I think are the districts that are going to be most successful with that. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up all those topics with equity, social emotional learning, and authentic relationships. And I think that's a good segue to your book because you wrote the book prior to the pandemic, but during the pandemic is when I read it. Man, I just related to so many things that you wrote about, and it was such a perfect book for the time. I know that probably wasn't intended. However, I think it, it helped a lot of educators and leaders and I really would love for you to share, for those who haven't had a chance to read it, just maybe a quick synopsis of personal and authentic. Sure. Thanks for the shout there. I appreciate that. It's funny. I do get a lot of people that ask. A lot of districts did book studies on it and whatever, just because of the main themes throughout it. And I get a lot of people that ask, wow, like writing a book in a pandemic, was that a challenge? And I laugh being like, look, uh, it came out just before the pandemic. And so- <laughs> Somebody asked a question, uh, I was doing a different podcast the other day and they said, it's like something along the lines of like, do you think your words are even more relevant now? And I was like, well, it's kind of a funny question to answer the author because I don't think any author is going to say no. But <laughs> the reason I would say yes is when we take a look at Personal Authentic, my goal in writing that, number one was to inspire and encourage educators by having them recognize the amazing impact that they really, really do have on a daily basis. Because here's, here's, like, here's the reality of it. Every educator in the United States has the ability to walk away tomorrow if they want. Yep. There's not a single educator in the United States that would be forced to be there tomorrow and like dragged out of bed, brought there, and every one of us can walk away tomorrow, but you choose to stay. Why? 
And so when we take a look, I wanted people to get back to the heart of like, what did they say in that interview chair on why they so desperately wanted the job that they now have? That sometimes I know Tom Murray was pretty easy to like take a look and start taking for granted the job that I wanted so badly or start to nitpick some of the things that might've been wrong. And, you know, months prior been like, I'll do anything to get that job. Right. And so when we start to look at help people bring back to the human side of the work. I felt like we had gotten so far away from so many things where like we were looking at data before we looked at the kid, where we were looking at tools and apps and technology before looking at like, well, what are we really trying to do from a learning end? Or is it just shiny and cool and fun? Right. And so when we look at those pieces, bringing us back to like, what's our real purpose with this work? How do we ground this and providing a culture where kids want to be? How do we model it? One of the things that I will say is like, I will never stand on a stage. I know I'm doing your district's opening this summer. Yeah. One of my pleas to you, I will not ever. I will never stand on a stage. I will never write in a book. Like here's how well Tom Murray did something. You won't see it. A number of years ago, I pledged to myself. I will never stand on a stage. I will never be on a podcast and be like that guy. That's like, this is how I did it. And tell all positives. I'll tell you how I did it. When I screwed it up, I'll tell you when it was, my mindset was off that I needed a kick in the butt by a mentor to be like, we don't do that here. That's been me. I've been on the other side of that. And so to help people look critically, and I really believe that vulnerability is a key to reflection and growth. And I share that because there's a lot of times throughout personal and authentic that I was uber vulnerable, like literally put myself totally out there. And I don't mean in a good way. I mean, like this was my mindset and it's ugly. And I'm thanking God that I had a mentor that called me out one-on-one, man-to-man. He didn't gossip about me. He didn't slander me in some faculty room. It wasn't that at all. It was man-to-man being like, Tom, like, you're better than that. Get your head back in it, right? And needing that and just showing people, hey, like, I'm writing this book. You're reading it. And I've been the guy that's needed that, right? And I think that vulnerability is really key because when when you're vulnerable, I think people let their guards down. Mm -hmm. People start to say, you know what, like, I've been that person in the faculty room. Yeah, that. We've all been there. That's been right. And so that vulnerability is a key to growth. And I have the opportunity. I work with so many superintendents, so many principals. They're folks that, by the way, they're some of the best, most incredible, empathetic people on the planet. They're working so hard. And I share all that being, it can be hard to be vulnerable the higher up you go. Listen, working with a superintendent, they are one vote away. They are one board meeting away from looking for a new job. If you have superintendent on your business card, that's your reality, right? Teachers, recognize that. Your superintendent is one board meeting away from being unemployed. Literally every board meeting, that's the reality. And so when you look at those pieces, it can be hard as a superintendent to talk about your failures, talk about where you messed things up. Talk. But what I've found is when we see superintendents that are vulnerable and share, you know what, gang, I made that decision and we were going, and it was wrong. And I'm going to own it. And I apologize about that. That's my mistake. And they own it. And then we create that vision forward, right? And what does that encourage principals to do? Well, I encourage principals when they make the wrong call. And if you're a principal listening, I love you, but you're going to make mistakes. You're human to be in front of a staff, to be like, hey, you know what, for this year's schedule for the, for the virus, we're on 37B hybrid Tuesday, you know, in May version, whatever it might be, right? Like, and I messed that up. I missed this. And guys, I apologize about that. I thought I had it. What does that help teachers do? It helps teachers in a classroom yep. when things don't go their way. And the example that I give to teachers there as well is like, if your students look at you as this perfect person that never makes mistakes, that always gets it right, that can give you all the standards frontwards and backwards and always has the right answer, like as lovingly as I can, they can't relate to you because they have no idea what that feels like. 
for our teachers. Like if you can't relate to your principal, it creates a culture of what? Principals, if you can't relate to your superintendent, creates a culture of what? And so that vulnerability to me is really key. And it doesn't mean we just like take all our baggage and just throw it on a table every day and throw it out there. I don't mean it like that. I mean, just keep it real. There's so many things where we try to come at it looking like everything's perfect. Just, just keep it real. And I think the pandemic's really helped people to do that. I feel like educators are giving each other more grace than ever before. I think collaboration, you know, one of the positives to come out of it, I think people are collaborating at higher rates of ever. I mean, a lot of educators have always done it and done it well, but I just think people are just so selfless in what they're giving and how they're helping and how they're supporting each other, you know, and some of those real positive pieces. So from a personal and authentic end, going back to our why, going back to our purpose, I also share some real personal stories. Like people often ask me as the author, what's your favorite chapter? Or what was the chapter that was hardest to write? And quite often people will think it's the first chapter. I share some, some trauma that I'd gone through as a brand new teacher, 21 years old. And my struggles, my first year where I almost walked away. Like I was really close multiple times to being like this whole education thing too hard. Not for me, too emotional. Can't do it. I'm out. That was me first year, like really close. And it wasn't that chapter. It was actually the third chapter where I talk about the hidden stories within. One of the things that I do is I share with my daughter's permission, part of her life journey, part of her story. And what I share is I share my little girl at, at 10 months old. We didn't know, but at that time, but she had such significant food allergies that they had multiple ones that, that could take her life in a pretty short time frame. And so I share part of her journey, part of her story. When, when I get to keynote or speak, I'll often put slides on a, you know, something on a slide and I'll put here, here's just some data. Let's, let's process this data for a moment in a 14 month period. This child was absent 35 days. They were 20, tardy 20 times. Let's talk about for a moment, just keep it real. What are some, what are some judgments people might make, right? What are some judgments? And I'll go around a room or parents are lazy. Kid doesn't care. Parents, you know, parents are disconnected. Maybe she's pregnant. Maybe she's drugged. Maybe she's up playing Minecraft all night. Obviously doesn't care about school. Maybe she's bullied. All right. Let me tell you the next part of the story. Go to the next slide. It's a picture of my little girl. That's Tom Murray's daughter. But by the way, parents are a mess. Like, thanks baby. That's me. Appreciate the shout out. Right. <laughs> but I tell it in a way to share. If you made the decisions about my daughter, just based on her data, yeah. you'd make a lot of really bad decisions. Like my little girl drove 10,000 miles on those 35 absences with either my wife or myself, my little girl on every single one of those 20 days tardy, she was two hours from our home driving all the way back after therapy that morning for her food allergies, these, these therapies to be able to get back to school at one o'clock in the afternoon. As I start to process and tell like, like, what if I told you that every single one of those trips, she would say like mommy or daddy, I really wish I could be in school today. And you get to the story. And so part of it is to helping people to see the story. If I told you in that 14 month period, my daughter had gone from being hospitalized from just a couple seeds of sesame, crackers, breads, anything like that, to now she eats over 2000 seeds every day to keep her safe through powder and whatnot. That's part of her journey. And here's why I share that. It's an invisible story. I call it the hidden stories within. It's a story. She could come sit in your classroom. She could come here on the podcast, come in and you couldn't see it in her, but she thinks about it every day. It's on her heart every single day. And so the analogy that I then share is, guess what? Like you have hidden stories as you lead this podcast right now, things that are on your heart, your mind, just like I do, just like our colleagues do that are teaching across the hall. And so a couple of the pieces that I relate to that, just to kind of wrap up this section, I would say, number one, one of the things I wrote is like, do we choose to see the hidden stories in other people or just inside of ourselves? Mm -hmm. 
we know the things that are on our hearts. And sometimes people push back being like, well, we never, we're not going to know. And I'm like, well, of course, we're not going to know all of them. We're not going to know most of the stories, but number one, do we seek to understand, especially where it's appropriate? And number two, like, do we lead with an empathy lens and recognize like we can be quick to judge. Like how many times was it me as a principal with a kid in the office? It's the 37th time in the office and it's the 35th day of school. And I'm like judging real, real quick. Just being honest, but to step back, how many times was it me with that same kid being like, why is this mother not because my mom did and not really knowing her story. And so I share lots of those pieces related that to help people step back, to not take things so personal when we have to question, but also to really seek to understand the why behind maybe student behavior, a lack of student motivation. Cause I've never met a parent or a student at the end of the day that doesn't want to succeed, but there's so many things that our kids come with. And especially during a time where fear and anxiety are so high on the outside of our walls, we've got to step back. It's the human side of our work. Yep. And so with that, you know, folks, and appreciate the shout out, but that we're really trying to make things personal, make it authentic. There's a framework related to that after interviewing so many folks. And what does this look like in the classroom? And it's where we look at things around cultural relevance or interests and passions and strengths or the SEL side of it, all the things that are really uber relevant, especially right now. The last piece that I'll say to it is I I recognize I've got one lens. I've got one experience. It's all I know. Doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it's wrong. And so with that, I recognize that it's my job to make sure that many voices are amplified, especially having a platform to do so. And so you'll see over a hundred diverse voices throughout the books that have different experiences than I do from superintendents to kindergarten teachers to give really practical advice and input on what things could look like. And certain sections of the book were co-authored with people that have very different life experiences than me. You know, if we're going to talk about things like cultural relevance, myself as a white male, it's really not my story to tell. I can give some data. I can give some federal input on that end, but at the end of the day, I've never lived racism. I've never lived being an immigrant to our country. I've never lived, and I could go on and on in those cases. And it's my job to recognize that. So it's my job to amplify the voices of so many others. And I'm proud to say in personal and authentic, there's so many voices of educators throughout working in schools that were, were, I was so honored that they were willing to, to lend to personal and authentic. Yeah, it's one of my favorite books, Tom. Honestly, I flew through it. The stories resonated so much, and I loved the diverse voices and the different experiences that were within the book. I felt like any educator could read this and feel what they went through, connect with the resources or the you know subject matter that they were talking about. It was the perfect book during a pandemic, honestly, but I think it's the perfect book for any educator moving forward because, like you said, our our priorities need to shift and it needs to be about the relationships. It needs to be about being authentic as a leader. So anyone that is listening right now, if you have not checked out this book, please do so. The other piece to that, too, Tom, is that you have a bunch of resources that you provide on your own website that connect with the book, which are phenomenal. So for those who maybe have read the book and are looking for additional resources and information, where can they find that? Yeah, so if you check out thomascmurray.com, which is the website slash authentic edu, which is kind of the book's hashtag. So thomascmurray.com slash authentic edu, well over a hundred videos, articles, resources, things that I use when I train districts. And you don't even need the book. I, I created all that. Um, yes, it correlates with the book, but you don't need the book. There's no password because I really believe we're in this work together. And so you can just go there to get so much of that. Use it in any way that you want, because we are in this together. We've got to get to the point where we care as much about the kid across the highway as we do it in our own district. And we've got to break down those silos and barriers. So I keep adding to that some of the things that I've filtered that are great resources, whether you're teaching in a classroom or leading schools. 
Tom, I want to end on this because I love asking all of my guests this is, you know, for our aspiring leaders, because that's why I created this podcast is for those who are looking to be better tomorrow and the next day in their leadership journey. If you can give them one piece of advice that they can implement next week to make sure that they're a better leader, what would that be? Stay humble. Don't forget your why. Don't lose your family in this process Mm -hmm. and make sure to take care of yourself. You know, as you go higher up, the time becomes even more and more demanding, which takes time away from your own family. Maybe you're single and listening to that. It can take a toll on your health, right? I can tell you countless friends of mine that say, I lost my marriage because I devoted everything to being a principal. I lost my health because all I ever did was do this at school or do these pieces. And you've got to make sure that you keep your priorities in order. At the end of the day, love what you do, teach hard love them harder. And that includes yourself in this process. Self-care is not selfish and it's our job. We've got to be at points where we can make those good decisions. And I know educators that have countlessly stopped or have continued to go and go and go, especially through a pandemic. And they're so selfless that they run over themselves in the process. So as new leaders, as aspiring leaders, focus on that why, but also take care of you. Yeah. I love that piece of advice. That's so true. Tom, for our listeners, how can they connect with you on social media? Sure. So my website's thomascmurray.com. It can link everything off of that. On Twitter, it's Thomas C. Murray. On Facebook and Instagram, it's Thomas C. Murray EDU. And reach out. We'd love to connect with you. Tom, it is always a pleasure and a joy to speak with you. You always provide such amazing insight, wisdom. I love your stories. It is a true honor, uh, like I said, to have you on for a second time on the Aspire podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.